You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista. Astounding Stories 19, July 1931. The Diamond Thunderbolt by H. Thompson Rich. Part 1. Locked in a rocket and fired into space. Such was the fate which awaited young Stoddard at the end of the Diamond Trail. Professor Norman Prescott, leader of the American Kinchinjunga expedition, crept from his dog tent, perched eerily at the 26,000-foot level of this unscaled Himalayan peak, the third highest in the world. With anxious eyes, he searched the appalling slopes that lifted another 2,000 feet to its majestic summit, now glistening in the radiance of sunset. Where was young Jack Stoddard, official geologist and crack mountaineer of the party? That morning, Professor Prescott and Stoddard had set off together from Camp Number 4 at the 22,000-foot level. Mounting laboriously but swiftly, they had reached the present airy by noon. There, Stoddard had left the leader of the expedition and pushed on alone to reconnoiter a razorback ridge that looked as though it might prove the key to the summit. But the afternoon had passed. The daring young geologist had promised to return in an hour, and now it was sunset, with still no sign of him. Professor Prescott sighed, and a bitter expression crossed his bronze-lined face. Just one more evidence of the cursed luck that had marked the expedition from the start. Well, he knew that he must head down at once for Camp Number 4, or risk death on this barren, windswept slope and equally well he knew that to go would be to leave his brave companion to his fate, providing he had not already met it on those desolate ridges above. Yes, and another thing he knew, the report of this latest disaster would mean the doom of the expedition. The terrified superstitious natives would bolt, claiming the snow people had struck again. Gods of the mountain, they called them. Those mysterious beings they alone seemed to see evil spirits who kept guard over this towering realm determined none should gain its ultimate heights tensely professor prescott stood there on that narrow shelf of glacial ice peering off into the sunset a hundred miles to the west bathed in the refulgence of a thousand rainbows rose the incredible peak of everest mightiest of all mountains yet less than one thousand feet higher than Kinchinjunga. And down, straight down those almost vertical slopes up which the expedition had toiled all summer, lay gorges choked with tropical growth. Off to the south, a scant fifty miles away, the British health station of Darjeeling flashed its white villas in the coppery glow. An awesome spectacle, one that human eyes had seldom, if ever, seen yet from the summit so invitingly near. Perhaps even now Stoddard was witnessing this incomparable sight. To push on, to join him, meant triumph, to head down, defeat, while to stay, to wait. Grimly, Professor Prescott left his insecure perch and headed up over that razorback ridge whence the young geologist had vanished. As he proceeded cautiously along, drawing sharp quick breaths in the rarefied upper atmosphere he told himself it was ambition that was leading him on 
but in his heart he knew it was not so in his heart he knew he was going to the rescue of his gallant companion though the way meant death a hundred yards had been gained perhaps two each desperate foothold fraught with peril of a plunge into the yawning abysms to left and right when suddenly he spied a figure on a twilight spur ahead panting he paused it must be stoddard yet it seemed too small too ghostly professor prescott waved but even as he looked for an answering signal the figure vanished my eyes he muttered to himself i'm getting snow-blind then he called aloud jack oh jack hello only an echo greeted the call and he did not repeat it but pushed on silently conserving his energy was there truth after all in those persistent rumors of the natives about the snow people who inhabited the upper slopes of the himalayas his tired brain toyed with the idea to be cut off sharply by the cheery call hi there professor hi ho and gazing upwards toward a jutting crag not ten rods beyond he saw young stoddard etched against the darkening sky in a few joyous steps professor prescott had reached his audacious companion thank god he gasped i'd given you up for lost why give me up for anything so unpleasant was the genial reply i've just been enjoying the view then then you reached the top with a quick intake of breath well not exactly but i feel on top of the world just the same the professor's spirits fell then i can't see of course you can't see interrupted stoddard but look at this as he spoke he drew from a pocket of his leather jacket something that caught the last light of the dying day and refracted it with weird brilliance professor prescott blinked well a diamond as big as your fist and here's another his left hand reached into his jacket and produced a second sparkling gem but but i don't understand granted but you will when i tell you i found the diamond thunderbolt the professor gave a shrug of scorn and no doubt you've seen the snow people and have had a perfect afternoon while no i haven't seen any snow people but i've had a perfect afternoon all right as i said i found the diamond thunderbolt and here are a couple of chips picked up from around the edge so saying stoddard extended his two specimens toward professor prescott who disdained at first to touch them nothing but quartz was the deprecating comment the snow has affected your eyesight as it has my own i'll say it's affected yours if you don't recognize diamonds when you see them but wait till i show you the old thunderbolt itself it's more quartz brusquely be sensible jack this diamond thunderbolt thing is a pure myth like the snow people business just because this section of india is known as the land of the diamond thunderbolt you think you're going to find some precious meteor or other whereas the term applies merely to the llama's scepter granted it does a little impatiently but did it ever occur to you that where there's smoke there's fire meteor is the word one struck here once a diamond meteor and i found it 
Take a look at these two specimens and see what you think. Whereupon, Professor Prescott accepted the glinting gems from his young friend, to gasp a moment later as he held them tremblingly. Good Lord! They're diamonds, to be sure. Where did you find them? Stoddard hesitated before replying. Not far from here, he said at length, moving off. Come, I'll show you. But the professor stood firm on their narrow ledge. You must be crazy, he exclaimed. We'll have trouble enough now getting back. It's practically dark already. Then what's the odds? retorted the young geologist. We've got all night. But our friends at Camp Number 4, even now they must think we are lost. Then further thought won't kill them. Besides, we'll be back before morning, and they can't send out a relief party sooner. But any moment a storm may come up. You know what that would mean. Does it look likely? scoffed Stoddard, waving his hand aloft. See? There's the moon. She'll be our guide. Professor Prescott looked, saw a slender shallop charting her course among the stars, and for a moment was tempted. But speedily his responsibilities reasserted themselves. No, I can't do it, he said with finality. I owe it to the expedition to return as soon as possible. Furthermore, there's the matter of the authorities. We assured the British we would adhere strictly to our one purpose, to scale Kinchinjunga. A mere formality. No, a definite order from the Lamas. They closed Mount Everest, after the last expedition, you will recall. The Lama's scepter is veritably a diamond thunderbolt of power in this region. Whereupon Stoddard's patience snapped. Listen, he said. I hurried away because I knew you'd be anxious, but I'm going back if I have to. And I say you're not. The professor's patience, too, had snapped. I'm not going with you, and you're not going back alone. As the leader of this expedition, I forbid it. The younger man laughed raspingly as he shook off the hand that clasped his arm. And for a moment, it looked as though the two would fight there on that dizzy ledge above the world. Then Stoddard got control of himself. Sorry, he said. I see I've got to tell you something, Professor. You think I'm merely the geologist of this expedition, but in fact, I'm a Secret Service man from Washington, on the trail of the biggest diamond smuggling plot in history, and here is where the trail ends. Professor Prescott's astonishment at these words was profound. He stood there blinking up at Stoddard, scarcely believing he had heard aright. You, you say you are a detective, if you want. Anyway, if you've read the papers, you must know that for the past year or more the diamond markets of the world have been flooded with singularly perfect stones. Yes, I recall reading about that. They were thought to be synthetic, were they not? By certain imaginative newspaper reporters, not by the experts, for under the microscope they revealed the invariable characteristics of diamonds formed by nature, the tiny flaws and imperfections no artificial means could duplicate. But didn't I read something, too, about some anonymous Indian Raja who was thought to be raising money by disposing of his jewels? More newspaper rubbish. For one thing, British Secret Service men traced the rumor down and satisfied themselves there wasn't a Raja in India unloading any diamonds. For another, 
no rajah could possibly have the wealth involved why do you know that since this plot unfolded over five million carats worth have made their appearance and that means something like a billion dollars phew whistled the professor phew is right his companion agreed and not only have the diamond markets of the world been disorganized by this mysterious influx but the countries involved have lost millions of dollars in revenue due to the fact that the gems have been smuggled in without payment of duty but surely my dear fellow you don't connect this gigantic plot with your discovery of whatever it is you've discovered a diamond as big as a house that's what i've discovered and i most surely do connect the plot with it did you ever have a hunch professor well i had one and it's worked out you leave me more in the dark momentarily declared the older man glancing around as though to give his words a double meaning what was your hunch and how did it come to lead you here whereupon stoddard told him swiftly for there was no time to lose when first assigned to the case he said he had been as baffled as anyone but as he had studied the problem one outstanding fact had given him the clue all the gem experts agreed that the mysterious flood of smuggled stones was of indian origin being of the first water and of remarkable fire in other words of the finest transparency and brilliance therefore since they were genuine and were seemingly coming from india stoddard had concentrated his attention on this country seeking their exact source investigation showed that there were no mines within its borders capable of producing anything like the quantity that was inundating the market but and here was where the hunch came in there was a district in the sikkim himalayas of bengal whose capital was darjeeling land of the diamond thunderbolt why had it been called that was there some legend back of it there was he had learned for though in modern times the phrase had come to apply merely to the lama's scepter as professor prescott had pointed out originally it had carried another meaning for legend said that once a diamond meteor had fallen on the mighty slopes of kichinjunga that had been enough for stoddard he had followed his hunch had gotten himself attached to the american kichinjunga expedition and that's why i'm here and all about it he finished now then are you coming back with me and have a look at my diamond thunderbolt or am i going back alone a long moment the professor debated before replying yes i'll come with you he said at length extending his hand forgive me jack i didn't know or forget it said stoddard shaking how the devil could you till i told you but just one thing mum's the word right right and one thing more it may be well a one-way trip forget it okay professor with a last warm handclasp leaving them joined in a new bond of friendship the two men moved on over that narrow moonlit ridge across the top of the world it was a desperate trail professor prescott realized after scarcely a dozen steps the ridge grew narrower sheerer and in places they had to straddle it legs dangling precariously to left and right admiration for his gallant companion mounted in the professor's pounding heart as they struggled on 
only to picture anyone eager to return such a perilous way after once getting safely back other thoughts occupied his mind too during the next half hour more than once he could have sworn he saw small ghostly figures on the ridge ahead but he made no mention of it for stoddard didn't seem to see them now they gained the far end of that hazardous ridge where a sloping shelf of jagged rock offered a somewhat more secure footing along this they proceeded laterally for some distance suddenly stoddard paused and called out ah there we are he indicated a step pocket to the left have a look down there professor and tell me what you see prescott lowered his eyes to the depths below to draw back with a gasp for what he saw was a vast phosphorescent glow like a fallen star what what is it he cried in an awed voice and back came the ringing reply the diamond thunderbolt but the radiance of the thing it couldn't reflect that much light from the moon no and it doesn't but there's nothing uncanny about it just what i expected the thing would look like at night but come on professor you haven't seen the half of it the way led down the jagged shelving slope now and the descent was too precarious for further comment ten minutes passed fifteen possibly when they reached a sheltered snowless arena where titanic forces had clashed at some remote age fragments of splintered rock lay strewn in wild confusion and among them glinting in the moonlight were bright crystals picking up one stoddard said laughingly one of mother nature's trinkets worth half a million or so professor prescott blinked at it a moment almost in disbelief then stooped and picked up one for himself a diamond that would have made the koh-i-noor look like a pebble there was no doubting its genuineness even in the moonlight it flashed and burned like a thing of fire but as the professor turned his eyes at last from its dazzling facets they failed him again or so he thought for half hidden behind a jutting crag loomed a huge cylindrical object seemingly of metal for the space of two breaths he stared speechless then gasped good lord what's that following his gaze stoddard saw it too god knows he muttered in a tense voice it wasn't there this afternoon let's have a look at it cautiously not knowing what to expect they advanced toward the singular phenomenon nearing they saw that it was a mechanism some twenty feet at the base and sixty or more feet high pointed at the top a rocket declared professor prescott though i've never seen anything larger than a laboratory model i'll gamble that's what it is and i'll gamble you're right exclaimed stoddard and one capable of carrying passengers would you say fully then i think we have solved the mystery of how these diamonds reach the market the question now is who's back of this thing and since our position here probably isn't any too healthy he broke off and drew his automatic as a small ghostly figure appeared seemingly from nowhere the professor saw it too saw it followed by another and another and now he knew his eyesight had not failed him back on that wind-swept slope above either for these were actual creatures incredible as they seemed the snow people he did not know had no time to find out for with a rush the strange beings were all around them 
Stoddard leveled his pistol and called on them to halt, but they came on, scores, hundreds now, seeming to pour out of some unseen aperture of the earth. Once or twice he fired, over their heads, but it failed to halt them. They closed in, jabbering shrilly. But though their words were a babble, their actions were plain enough. Swarming up, they overpowered the explorers by sheer numbers and herded them with jabs of sharp tiny knives toward a cavern mouth that opened presently amid those eerie crags. Led underground, they found themselves proceeding along a frosty passage lit every few yards by a great chunk of diamond. Their dim glow seemed to be refracted from some central point beyond. This point they soon reached, a great vaulted chamber whose brilliance was at first dazzling. Its source, after the first moment or so, was obvious. It was coming from the roof, which was one vast diamond. You see where we are? whispered Stoddard, under the diamond thunderbolt. These people have tunneled beneath the meteor, or else... Their tunnel was already there when the meteor fell, finished Professor Prescott. But can it be possible such creatures could have produced that rocket? I'm inclined to think anything is possible now, but I'm sorry I dragged you into this, Professor. I... Forget it. We're here, and we'll face it together, whatever it is. You're a game, sport. Stoddard gripped the older man's hand. We'll face it and lick it. Further talk was interrupted by a stir among their captors. The ranks parted, and into that dazzling chamber stepped a tall, bearded personage whose aristocratic features and haughty bearing suggested a Russian of the old regime. He strode toward them, smiling sardonically. Greetings, my friends. Nice of you to drop in on me while in the neighborhood. His English was suave, precise. Professor Norman Prescott, leader of the American Kinchinjunga expedition, I believe. He paused and lifted inquiring eyebrows to his other guest. And Dr. John Stoddard, our geologist, came the answer stiffly. And you, sir? A fellow professor, you might say. Prince Ivan Krasnov. You have heard of me, perhaps. Prescott had indeed. One of Russia's most brilliant and erratic scientists under the Tsar. The man had been permitted to continue his work for the Soviets, developing, among other inventions, a rocket reported to be capable of carrying passengers. But some two years ago, he and his rocket had vanished in the course of a test flight from Moscow. And the natural conclusion was that he had either perished in the sea or shot off the earth altogether since no trace of the unique mechanism was ever found. "'Yes, I have heard of you,' said the professor, recalling this sensational story that had occupied the front pages of the world's press for days. "'And so it turns out that your rocket didn't come to grief.' "'Not exactly. Though, as you can see, it landed me in rather an inaccessible spot,' was the reply. "'But quite an interesting one. I was well satisfied to let the papers report me missing.' You can understand, yes? I think I can. That part of it. While, as for Stoddard, he was beginning to understand a great deal. But these curious creatures, he said, indicating the whispering pygmy host that filled the cavern. You found them here? They found me, corrected the prince. But we get on quite well together. They consider me a god, you see, 
since I too came out of the sky in a thunderbolt, as their great diamond once did, according to their legends. But who are they? What is their origin? Why are they so small, so pale? Natural questions, Professor, but not so easy to answer. Who they are, I cannot say, save that they are the snow people of native superstition. Their origin? It is lost in antiquity. Perhaps they are the remnants of some Tibetan tribe driven into the mountains by enemies thousands of years ago. While as for their stature, their pallor, these, no doubt, are the result of the furtive underground life they lead. He paused, waited politely, as though for further questions, but neither spoke. Now that the main mystery was solved, the one question uppermost in both their minds was what this suave, inscrutable nobleman was going to do with them, and that question neither cared to ask, fearful of what the answer might be. Finally, Prince Krasnov spoke again. What? Gentlemen? You have no further curiosity about me? How unflattering! I thought, perhaps, you might want to know why I have chosen to maintain my headquarters here on Kinchinjunga the past two years, and how I have been occupying my time. But I hold no resentment. I shall tell you so that you will be prepared for what I am going to propose. He turned and addressed the pygmy host in what must have been their own tongue. Then, facing his guests again, he said, Now come, let us retire to my private study, where we shall have more leisure. They followed him from the dazzling chamber and proceeded on down the cavern to a fork that ended about twenty paces further in a massive steel-bound door. There he paused and twirled a knob like the dial of a safe. After a moment there came a click as of tumblers meshing, and a tug on the knob swung the door open. The prince bowed. "'Step into my little apartment,' he said. They entered to find themselves in a large oblong room furnished in Slavic luxury. As they crossed a rich oriental rug spread over the threshold, a musical gong sounded somewhere, and almost instantly two enormous Cossacks sprang into view to bar their way with rifles. "'My bodyguard,' apologized Krasnov, shutting the door. "'They are quite harmless.' except to intruders. Just one of the little precautions that make life safer. He spoke to the men in Russian, and they withdrew. Then he advanced to a divan beside a teakwood table on which stood a large copper samovar. Dropping down, he motioned for them to take seats beside him. You will have tea, my friends? Or perhaps you would prefer whiskey and soda? They chose the latter, since their recent exertions seemed to have warranted it, and their host tinkled a silver bell, bringing a Chinese boy beaming and salaaming. A few words to him and the samovar was lit. Then he hurried off on padding feet, to return with miraculous speed, bearing not only the whiskey and soda, but a platter heaped with exotic cakes, cubed sandwiches of caviar and spiced fish, together with a profusion of other delicacies, doubly welcome to men who had toiled all day on a mountain peak, with nothing but chocolate to sustain them. And while they drank and ate, Prince Krasnov told his story, a story whose very first words were an admission that he was the head of the great diamond-smuggling plot Stoddard had set out to trace down. End of Section 8 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista